Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. I'm just a family dude, but you don't really know where my brain is at. Don't scratch my surface, ain't worth it, cause you'll see the dharma. Yo, this mic even on? Tuscles 1-2, Tuscles 1-2. What's going on, all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, that mildly chilled or chilly. It's cold as fuck here in Northwest Indiana, Corey Caesar. Uh, we're back, and, and it's been a long break, guys. It's been three three weeks or so. Um, if you if you listen to that little update, I put a little update episode out about a week and a half ago. Hopefully, you'll be listening to this on Monday. Um, you know the reason why, and the reason is you know my grandfather had some medical issues. Just a quick little update on where we're at with that. Um, they were unable to do the spine. I think this is where we left off. I was unable to. They were unable to do the spinal tap on him because he couldn't sit still. Um, he's kind of been waking up in and out. Um, but what they found out was, <clears throat> is that he has a, uh, he has a virus in his brain. That's the, that's the likely, um, diagnosis. So, um, there's, there's nothing you really can do for a virus, right? It's like catching the flu. It's like you can, you can fight the symptoms a little bit, but your body has to actually fight that virus itself and it has to kill that virus itself. So that's kind of where we're at. So he has to get stronger. In order to fight that, obviously, so they got a feeding tube in them, and uh, we moved them to like a a, a spill a, a skilled nursing facility um, where they're working on like rehab, getting his muscles moving and shit, so he can kind of um, get stronger. But he he hasn't really been doing that well there. Um, he's been pretty much asleep for the last three days, so we don't really, you know, it's basically if he can't get stronger, it, you know, it's pretty much. Listen, guys, we we all don't know when that contract we signed is going to be up. And um, if I'm going to be honest with it, it's just not looking very good for my grandfather right now. And uh, we don't want to see him suffering. And we don't want to see him uh, laying there like that for our selfish, our, you know, our selfish reasons. Um, so I had this episode actually ready to go. Um, I just ha- didn't have time to record it because all that shit was going down. I wanted to release this on the day before Halloween, um, you know, because... It, you know, serial killers and Halloween, they go kind of go hand in hand. So that's what we're doing. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and do this one anyway, even though I know the like two episodes ago was another serial killer edition, but um, let's just rock it. So this is episode 47 and it's on the toolbox killers. And our story today takes us back to the late seventies, right? And once again, it takes us to that murderous area of California, in particular, Southern California. Now, Southern California has something for everyone. It's a temperate climate, um, basically year-round, um, which is a, a boon to agriculture, industry, and tourism. Because, you know, people obviously want to be where it's fucking, you know, where it's warm. They don't want to be here in northwest Indiana where it's 10 degrees out in snow and just dirty looking. Um, there's mountains and deserts for those hikers, the people that like to hike. Um, and there's beach, uh, them, them beaches, you know, they lure surfers and sunbathers, 
You got those farms and citrus groves and them good old marijuana plants now uh, grown in abundance there for, for some of them new age farmers. Um, we got tourists that go there and then they head south seeking adventures in the streets of Tijuana, Tecate, and Mexicali. The Hollywood Dream Factory devours wannabe stars. Money leaves a trail stench on Rodeo Drive. The darker side, of course, is unmentioned in the guidebooks and brochures. As always, crime goes hand in hand with uh, with affluence. So you got you got a busy area, got lots of people roaming around. Year uh, people can walk around year round. You're gonna get crime. That's just it's part of the game. Um, and, and where there's a lot of money, you're gonna find crime because people that don't have money are gonna want to steal it from you. Um, drugs drugs flow across the border pretty easily. Prostitutes work the streets near the studios of Disney and Universal. Runaways sleep in the culverts, sidewalks, alleyways, or in the seedy crash pads such as Hollywood's notorious Hotel Hell. And they're also predators. Southern California is psychocentral. The region has earned its grim reputation the hard way, producing a full 10%, guys. 10% of the world's identified serial killers since 1950 have come from Southern California. That's fucking crazy when you think about it. It's worldwide. That's a worldwide statistic, not just an American statistic. Now, predictably, a lot of these killers are now celebrities. Because, you know, it's Hollywood. With nicknames tailor-made for the tabloids and for them movies. You have the Night Stalker, the I-5 Killer, the Skid Row Slasher, the Hillside Strangler, the Freeway Killer, the Koreatown Slasher, the Candlelight Killer, the Southside Slayer, the Trash Bag Killer, the Sunset Slayer, and the Orange Coast Killer. Now, no studies have explained the disproportionate number of serial killers in Southern California, but some of the answers are as obvious as the, you know, talentless Hollywood nymphets. The first is population. Hunters go where there's game. And Southern California offers an abundance of prey. Los Angeles itself, um, its population stood at about 3.6 million at the turn of the new century, with another 1.2 million in San Diego. Overall, the sprawl from Santa Barbara to the Baja border it totals about 25 million people. Innumerable others live, quote, off the record, which include runaways, illegal aliens, um, or immigrants, whatever you want to call them, the homeless, fugitives, and those who simply have fallen through the cracks. Because guys, in any society this large, 330 million people, no matter what the system is, or how great you think you can make it, people are going to fall through the cracks. That's just a reality. There's always going to be people who fall through the cracks, who stagger towards the bottom of a system, who don't do as well. No matter what you do, you'll never be able to fix that. The idea is to, to give them the tools that can help them bring and the easiest way to get them up, right? Um, now, now, among those 25 million inhabitants and others yet unrecognized, you know, a predator can find abundant targets of opportunity. They're just there. And these include hitchhikers, prostitutes, fringe dwellers, unattended children, and the forgotten elderly. Many won't be missed. If their bodies are recovered from a shallow grave, a highway culvert, or a garbage dumpster, who gives a fuck? Who will care? Who's going to come claim them? Who's going to say, hey, I need you to look for this person who killed my relative? They don't have no relatives. They don't have no people. They don't have no friends. Mobility is also key here. 
Southern California invented the automobile cult. The population is large, but the density is actually quite low. A teeming highway system, for example, has made Los Angeles the global capital of bank robbery. Did you know that? In a predictable uh, irony, a predator named Mac Ray Edwards helped build those freeways. And while he was doing that, he ended up slaughtering children from 1953 to 1969, planting their bodies overnight in soil that he knew would be paved with asphalt in the morning. Yep. By the time Edward uh, hung himself in San Quentin's death row, the next generation of killers were already cruising those freeways in style. Their names are nightmarish legend, Harvey Glattman, Thor Christensen, Kenneth Bianchi, and Angelo Biono, Patrick Kearney, William Bonin, and Vernon Butts, Fernando Cotto, Randy Kraft, the Manson family. Two, um, two of the worst are now all but forgotten today, except for the families of victims and some cops. These slayers never had nicknames because reporters never learned of them until they were in custody. Yet one of these has selected a nickname for himself, and he signs his prison fan mail, Pliers. Lawrence Sigmund Bitteker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 to a couple who didn't want children. His biological mother placed him in an orphanage. Now, Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker came along, and I use that terminology, Mr. and Mrs. George, and I know that's old-fashioned, but I use that because I couldn't find his mom's name. No bullshit. She's like unknown somehow. If you can find it, please DM me, because I looked everywhere. I searched everywhere on the interwebs. Could not find this chick's name. She's like a ghost. Um, either way, they adopted the infant, who would be known as Lawrence, shortly after uh, he was born. Now, George's work, George Bitteker, uh, he worked in aircraft factories, and that kind of meant frequent moves for the family from Pennsylvania to Florida, then to, then to Ohio, and then finally moved to California. Now, something of a rootless childhood kind of stuck with Lawrence, and he dropped out of school in 1957 after several brushes with police uh, and juvenile authorities. Soon after dropping out of high school, he was arrested at Long Beach for auto theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. That bust earned him a trip to California's Youth Authority, where he remained until he was about 19 years old. Within days of his California parole, he was picked up by FBI agents in Louisiana charged with violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act. Convicted on that charge, he was sentenced to serve 18 months at the Federal Reformatory in Oklahoma. His behavior there soon earned him a transfer to the U.S. Medical Center at Springfield, Missouri, where doctors released him after he had served just two-thirds of his sentence. Arrested next for a Los Angeles robbery in 1960, Bitteker was convicted in May 1961 and slapped with an indeterminate sentence of, you guys ready for this? One to 15 years in state prison. What kind of fucking sentence is that? One to 15 years. What does that even mean? Why, why such a large, like a large, just like one year ain't shit compared to 15. Just doesn't, seems weird, right? In 1961, while in jail, um, psychiatric, uh, he had a psychiatric examination and that found him to be manipulative and quote, having considerable concealed hostility. Now, despite his superior intelligence, and he was actually tested for an IQ of about 138, it's pretty high. 
um, he was diagnosed as, quote, border psychotic and, quote, basically paranoid. Now, the following year, a second psychiatrist noted that he was, quote, poor, uh, uh, he had, quote, poor control of impulsive behavior. Now, these diagnoses notwithstanding, he was paroled in late 1963 after serving barely one-sixth of his possible maximum sentence, about two and a half years. That's it. Now, Freedom never seemed to agree with Larry Bittaker because two months after his conditional release, he was jailed again for parole, uh, parole violations and suspicion of robbery. And then another, and then he, then he got out, and then another parole, a parole violation sent him back to prison in 1964. When interviewed by a psychiatrist in 1966, he confessed that stealing made him feel important, then cur- curiously added um, that his crimes occurred, quote, under circumstances that were not totally my fault. Another diagnosis of borderline psychosis was recorded, and authorities released him yet again, only to again see another parole violation in 1967. Think about how crazy this is. This is like the fourth or fifth time he's been released in like four or five years. Still hasn't done the whole 15 years for that first for that first sentence. Um, one month later, <laughs> he was tagged for theft and leaving the scene of a hit and run accident. Convicted on those charges, he drew another five-year sentence, but was paroled after serving less than three years in April of 1970. Then in 1971, you know, just a few short uh, months later, arrested again for burglary and another parole violation. He was convicted on both those counts uh, later that year and received an additional sentence of another bullshit sentence. You guys ready? Six months to 15 years. Guys, he hasn't even done the full 15 years for that first for that first uh that first case. In my opinion, if you get a dumbass sentence like that, one to 15 years, which is just fucking retarded, and you get pulled uh picked up again after release, like let's say you, just, you served your two and a half years like he did, and you get released, and you make a parole violation, you should get that full 15 years. It should be automatic, the maximum 15. That's what you get. Um. Now the, now, the California prison system at that time was in such disarray, obviously, uh, that it was hardly surprising that Bitteker was freed just three years after that sentence. Still hasn't done his 15. And that, w- that was uh, 1974. His next crime began as a simple shoplifting crime, though. And he, sho- you know, he, he shoved a steak down the front of his pants in a supermarket. Now, apparently, dude always had that dream of packing big meat down there, and this was his opportunity to get in the big dick game. That's my theory. But this escalated to attempted murder in the parking lot when he stabbed an employee who tried to stop him. Dude's like, hey, man, I see you got a big dick. I know your dick ain't that big. What you got in your pants? He's like, fuck you, I'll stab you, guy. Show you my big dick. Now, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Markman he examined him before trial and rejected the earlier findings of borderline psychosis. He branded Bittaker a, quote, classic sociopath. As Markman explained that term later in his memoir, uh, Alone with the Devil, which was in 1989, the diagnosis simply meant that Bittaker was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He would never learn by experience, and he would just keep butting his head against the barriers of acceptant behavior. In short, he was a hopeless case, beyond any known treatment or rehabilitation. 
Dr. Markman also warned that he was bound to escalate his criminal behavior, moving on to more serious crimes. He was, quote, a highly dangerous man with no internal controls over his impulses, a man who could kill without hesitation or remorse. Bitteker later reinforced this surmise, telling a cellmate that someday he planned to, quote, be bigger than Manson. Prison psychiatrist occurred, uh, concurred with Markman. A 1977 jailhouse evaluation found him more than likely to commit new crimes upon his release. A year later, uh, in July 1978, another psychiatrist dubbed him a sophisticated psychopath whose prospects for successful parole were guarded at best. Again, though, these warnings were ignored. And Bitteker was released in November 1978, but not before he made a special friend. And that friend was Roy Lewis Norris, who was born in Greenlee, Colorado on February 2nd, 1948. Now, unlike Bitteker, he lived in his hometown until he was 17, when he dropped out of school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego, but in 1969, Norris spent four months in Vietnam. Although he never saw combat, he did see a lot of drugs. Back in Southern California by 1969, uh, late 1969, Norris attacked a female driver in downtown San Diego. He forced his way into her car, and then attempted to rape her. Three months later, and free on bail, because that's what we do in California, right? Um, pending trial for, the, uh, for attacking that motorist, he knocked on another San Diego's woman's door. He asked if he could use her telephone. She was like, nah, I don't know. You, you can't come in my house. I'm a little, I'm a little worried about you. You look kind of creepy. So he was like, fuck it. I'll try to break through the, so he tried to break through the living room uh, window. When that was unsuccessful, he ran around to the back to the kitchen. He was able to breach a window there. And he finally entered the house. Fortunately for this lady, she had already contacted the police. So the police per, uh, arrived before he could even harm you know, his attendant victim. At that point, the Navy had kind of seen enough, though. And he received an administrative uh, discharge for, quote, psychological problems after he was diagnosed as having a severe schizoid personality. Now, still awaiting uh, disposition of his previous assault cases, because again, he's out for, you know, he tried to attack, attack two women, waiting, waiting uh, uh, both those cases trialed. They're like, eh, we'll put him back on the streets. Why not, right? He attacked another young woman in May of 1970 on the campus of San Diego State College. Think about how crazy that is, guys. Why was he even on the streets? Uh, he, he tackled a student from behind, clubbed her with a stone, and then slammed her head repeatedly into the concrete sidewalk. This time, the charge was assault with a deadly weapon, and it was finally enough to take Roy Norris off the streets. You know, that's all it took, three times. You got to attack people three times. Uh, he was confined to um, Atascardero State Hospital as a mentally disordered uh, sex, uh, sex offender. He spent five years there before being released on probation. That's it, five years. Officially, he was diagnosed as someone who would bring, quote, no further danger to others, which is going to be laughable as we continue the story. Um, and he, and he proved, that, um, proved that prediction wrong quite quickly. And that was only three months later in Redondo Beach. So cruising the streets on his motorcycle, he kind of spied a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant after a quarrel with her boyfriend. Now, being the stand-up dude he was and never wanting to miss an, uh, you know, 
in uh, opportunity to slide his way into a woman's arm after a heartbreak. He stopped to offer her a ride, which she declined. You're a creep. Leave me alone. Undeterred by this rejection, he leaped off his bike and attacked her, because that's his MO, right? He strangled her into semi-consciousness with her own scarf. Dazed, she did not resist as he drugged her uh, behind a nearby hedge and raped her. Police were unable to act because of her vague description of her attacker. But one month later, the woman saw Norris again. She memorized his license number. Let that sink in, guys. She knew his license plate number, but they couldn't do anything because her description of her attacker was vague. But once she saw him again, that was enough for the state of California to act on this already known violent criminal. It's kind of kind of weird, kind of a weird thing, right? Like, eh, if she had the if she already knew the license plate number, why don't you just go talk to this dude? Couldn't you got a description from him then? Now maybe I'm maybe I'm reading the story incorrectly. Maybe she saw him and then saw the bike and then and then memorized his license plate, and that's how they were able to track him down. Maybe that's it. I could be I could have just misinterpreted the reading. I don't I don't want because because it seems kind of weird. So I want to give that little caveat just in case. Um, Now, convicted of forcible rape for that crime, he was shipped to California's men colony in uh, San Luis uh, Obispo. Uh, It could have been worse because the colony is considered easy time as California prisons go. It's a cakewalk compared to like um, Folsom or San Quentin, right? Now, Norris had met a friend at the colony who would change his life. And we already talked about that friend. And that would be uh, Lawrence Bitteker, right? Um, now, reminiscing years later, Norris would claim that Larry Bitteker twice saved his life in San Luis Obispo. That experience bound him to Bitteker. Although the details are kind of vague, the, quote, prison code kind of demanded that uh, Norris follow any plan he devised, no matter how bizarre. It helped, of course, that they kind of shared near-identical fantasies of domination, rape, and torture. Next time a woman fell into his clutches, Bitterker confided, he would kill her afterwards, a surefire method of evading punishment. In fact, he thought it'd be fun to play like a little game, selecting one victim for each teen year, 13 through 19, and to see how long each victim could be kept alive and screaming. When Bitterker was paroled on November 15, 1978, he returned to Los Angeles, where he found work as a machinist. Norris was freed exactly two months later on January 15th, 1979, because, you know, three attacks and a rape gets you paroled just a few short years later. Um, he ended up moving with his mother uh, uh, in an L.A. trailer park and used his Navy training to find work as an electrician. Bitteker wrote to Norris um, in early 1979 and arranged like a little rendezvous at a cheap downtown hotel. Over drinks, they renewed their prison friendship and repeated their dark desires. Spring was coming to the Southland. It was nearly hunting season. As a first step toward fulfilling his vision, Bitteker purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. Now, this van had its advantages. There were no side windows to worry about, and there was a large sliding door on the passenger side. All that was missing uh, from this Chester the Molester vehicle with the words free candy spray painted on the side. That's it. Um, If their intended victims um, spurned their offer of a ride, Bitteker kind of reasoned that they could just pull up real close. 
and not have to open the doors all the way to snatch someone from the sidewalk. And Larry named this van Murder Mac. From February to June 1979, they cruised up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. They stopped at beaches, flirted with girls, and often took their photos. Norris later estimated that they picked up about 20 prospects without harming any of them. And his estimate may have been actually very low because detectives later counted over 500 photos of smiling young women among Bitteker's belongings, most of whom were never identified. Is that OG bang bus, guys? If you, if you, if you guys are in that porn game, I know, I know you guys have seen that bang bus. And this was the OG. Murder Mac was the OG bang bus. Um, the, these little excursions were test runs, Norris later explained. The rape and murder could wait until they found the perfect isolated spot to take their victims. So sometime late in April, while cruising aimlessly, the hunters found a remote fire road in San uh, Gabriel Mountains overlooking Glendora. A padlocked gate kind of barred access, though. So he just kind of smashed the lock with a crowbar, and that was it. They were in. Now all they needed was a girl, and they found her on June 24, 1979. Bitterker would later tell police that the day, quote, started innocently enough, and he spent the night in Murder Mac, parked outside the trailer that um, Roy Nor- Norris shared with his mom. And they kind of spent that morning working on a bed um, in the back of that van. Now, this bed was mounted on a frame with some space beneath it that could conceal a body. At about 11 a.m., they began prowling. Bitteker described it as, quote, a nice Sunday to cruise around the beach area, drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with girls. We had no set routine. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, that Sunday cruise doesn't sound all that bad to me. But their motives weren't as innocent as cruising around on a nice day, smoking some green, and uh, mingling with some women. As they made their rounds, driving north and hitting all the stops between Redondo Beach and Santa Monica, they were keeping kind of an eye out for them female hitchhikers. Sometimes they'd park the van even and scout a stretch of sand on foot. It was around 5 uh, p.m. back in Redondo Beach when they found a likely target. And she kind of took them both completely by surprise, according to reports. Bitteker and Norris later actually quarreled over who first noticed 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer. Each man kind of accusing the other of pointing her out and suggesting that she be the first contestant in their, quote, game. Ironically, she wasn't even at the beach or wearing a swimsuit. In fact, Schaefer was walking back to her grandmother's house after a Christian youth meeting at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. Murder Mac kind of pulled alongside, and Norris offered her that ride. And if we, and if we know by uh, um, past events, people don't like Norris's rides. They always turn them down. And just like previously, Schaefer declined and ignored the van as it trailed behind her. Then the van surged ahead, swung into a driveway, motor still running, and Norris kind of jumped out and met her on the sidewalk, smiling, repeating his offer. Hey, let's get in. You want to get in? I'll take you for a ride. She kind of brushed past him, kind of ignoring him. So Roy grabbed her and, you know, muscled her into the van. That sliding door worked perfectly, muffling her cries for help as Bitteker cranked up the radio volume. 
Now think about that, guys. Um, well, first, first he, he uh, so in, once in the van, she kind of grappled. Um, so Norris, Norris then sealed her lips with duct tape. He also bound her wrist and ankles. And then one shoe was left behind on the sidewalk as Murder Max sped away. So think about this, guys. I mean, this couldn't have been more of a cliche Hollywood kidnapping, right? A fucking Chester the Molester van kind of pulls up, sees a girl walking home from church to her grandma's house, offers her a ride. She doesn't pay attention. It lurks behind her for a few minutes. Driving real slow. Pulls ahead, jumps into a driveway. Someone jumps out, grabs them, throws them in a van, duct tapes them. Uh, their mouth ties their hands and feet, and a shoe's left behind for evidence. I mean, come on, guys. You couldn't write that better in Hollywood. That, that's how kidnappings happened in movies all day long. Um, in his prison pen memoirs, Bitteker later recalled that, quote, Throughout the whole experience, Cindy displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions and facts over which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Or perhaps Bitteker simply lied to make his story seem more intriguing. No one really knows. That's his account, though. Um, he drove to the mountain, to that mountain fire road and parked out of sight from the highway. The men smoked a little more and questioned Schaefer about her family until they kind of got tired of the routine and ordered her to strip. Bitteker left the van for an hour or so, giving Norris some privacy. Then he came back to take his turn. In custody months later, each accused the other of insisting that Schaefer die. Norris first tried to strangle her, but he kind of bungled the job. And he actually left a vomit in the, in, in the, in the weeds. Beta! When he returned, Norris said, Bitteker was choking Schaefer, but her body was still kind of alive and jerking, uh, alive to some degree, breathing or trying to breathe. Bitteker then handed Norris a wire coat hanger and they twisted it around her neck, tightening the make, makeshift garrote with a pair of vice grip pliers. Now, Norris recalled that Schaefer, quote, convulsed for 15 seconds or so, and that was it. She just died. So they wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and they drove back along the fire road until they found a deep canyon. They lifted Schaefer's body from the van and heaved her um, into the chasm. Bitteker said the desert scavengers would clean up after her. It had been nearly perfect. The exhausted friends agreed. But there was something missing. Next time they wanted to keep a trophy for their hunt. That's what serial killers like to do. They like them trophies. So they went hunting again on September, uh, I'm sorry, on Sunday, July 8th, 1979. And in the early afternoon, they saw a likely prospect, thumbing rods along the Pacific Coast Highway. Now, I know, I know some of you younger listeners, um, this folklore of hitchhiking seems like a made-up Hollywood movie thing, right? But hitchhiking was a legit way of transportation when I was growing up. You could not drive down the highway without seeing someone with that thumb in the air, even here in, in Indiana, um, you always hold, and you always had, and as a child, you always kind of held that card in your back pocket too, right? Better not ground me, I'll run away and hitchhike to wherever the fuck I want. That was always like the, you know, that was always the idea. But this time, old Lawrence and Roy and Roy boy uh, weren't slick or pimp enough for this young hitchhiking lady, because a driver of a white convertible kind of pulled up ahead of them 
and offered her offered her a ride first. Ooh. Norris kind of grumbled over their bad luck. But Bitterker counseled patience. He was like a cat. They would follow the convertible for a while and see where the hitchhiker was dropped off. And their patience soon would be rewarded. The convertible's driver signaled for an exit ramp ahead, breaking first to uh, deposit his passenger on the berm. She stuck out her thumb again, waiting for that next ride. And that's how it kind of worked, guys. You rode as far as you could um, in the direction someone else was headed. And then they would just drop you off and you start the process again. It just wasn't unheard of. Um, Meanwhile, Norris left Murder Mac's passenger seat and threw himself under that raised bed in the back. Remember that they they made that conceal a body. It was kind of a change in their strategy to make the van appear less threatening. And it worked. Andrea Hall was 18 and thankful for the ride. She introduced herself as he pulled back into traffic, gratefully accepting his offer of a cold drink. Hall went to fetch it from the cooler in the rear of the van, choosing a soda and turning back towards her seat. That's when Norris lunged out from his hiding and then swept her legs out from underneath her. More grappling on the floor of Murder murder Mac, more blaring music from the radio as Bitterker drove on. Hall fought for her life, but Norris was too strong, twisting an arm behind her back until she finally surrendered long enough for Norris to bind her wrists and ankles and cover her mouth with tape just like the first victim. The fire row was familiar territory now to these guys. There was no time for small talk with their second victim. They reported, uh, repeatedly raped her by turns. When both of them were tired, Bitteker loaded his uh, uh, Polaroid camera dragged Hall from the van and sent uh, Norris down the mountain to a small roadside convenience store for a beer run. (laughs) When Norris returned, he found Bitteker alone, smiling over photos of Andrea Hall uh, with her face kind of contorted by fear. Quote, he told me that he told her um, he was going to kill her. Norris later informed police, quote, he wanted to see what her argument would be for staying alive. He said that she didn't put up a much of an argument. Bitteker told Norris that he had stabbed Hall twice with an ice pick, once in each ear, but he had to strangle her when she kind of refused to die. When the murder was finished, Bitteker said he had um, kind of pitched her off a cliff, same way as the first the first uh, uh, body. They made their... Uh, they made their third foray on September 3rd, which was actually Labor Day. Um, cruising through Hermosa Beach this time, they spotted two girls seated on the beach at a bus stop where Pier Avenue and Pacific Coast Highway met. Um, 15-year-old Jackie Gillum and 13-year-old Lee Lamp, they weren't waiting for a bus, but they seemed happy to accept a ride with no special destination in mind how weird that is. Bitterker and Norris later told police the girls were also glad to accept Larry's offer to smoke a joint. Because what's better than offering free candy from, you know, from a Chester van? That's right, offering free weed from a Chester van. Uh, lighting up, he passed the joint around and told, you know, told his passengers that he was headed for the beach. Now, Jackie and Lee kind of challenged him moments later because he turned away from the ocean and started driving northward. But he stalled them with excuses, claiming he merely wanted to find a safe place to, uh, to park while they got high. 
The girls protested when he parked near a suburban tennis court. Leah, st- Leah Lee started to open the door, but Norris was faster, swinging a sawed-off baseball bat against her skull. A fierce struggle ensued. Bitteker waited uh, in to kind of help Norris, finally subduing the teenagers and trusting them with duct tape. Only when they were sec- uh, secured and silenced did he notice several of these tennis players were watching what was going on in this van from the nearby courts. Worried that someone might call the police, he gunned the van and sped away towards a hideout um, in San Gabriel Mountains. But nobody called the police. The witnesses returned to their games of tennis, dismissing the strange incident. Think about how crazy that is. That, that's a real problem with our society, it's just people not willing to speak up when they see someone. Like how many videos you watch now on, online when like someone's getting beat, like someone's getting jumped, like in the middle of the street, someone's getting attacked. And people are no no one's fucking helping. No one's jumping in, no one's helping. Half people aren't even trying to pay attention. They're just walking by, like nothing's going on. And the rest of you, everyone's and the rest of people are videoing so they can get so they can become viral. Fucking trash, dude. We're a trash society when it comes to that shit. Um now, Bitteker and Norris kept these latest hostages alive for nearly two whole days. They kept an audio tape of their rape and torture. Among other things, the tape captured Norris raping Jackie Gillum, demanding that she play her role of a cousin who was the object of some of his weird-ass sexual fantasies. Now, tired of this game and running dangerously late for work, Bitteker repeated his trick with the ice pick, stabbing Gillum in both ears. As with Andrea Hall... Um, he made her scream but failed to kill her so the rapist took turns strangling Jackie to death afterward they they turned on lamp um, Bitteker squeezing her throat while Norris pounded her head seven times with a sledgehammer they pitched these two victims off the cliff again with the ice pick still embedded into Jackie Gillum's skull on Sunday September 30th they selected Shirley Sanders, an Oregon resident visiting her father in Manhattan Beach. When she declined a lift in Murder Mac, they sprayed Sanders with chemical mace and dragged her kicking from the sidewalks. Both men raped her in the van, but they were careless and she escaped. It was their first mistake. Sanders reported the assault, but she could not identify her assailants. She did not uh, remember the license plate, so unable to pursue the matter further, she just kind of returned to Oregon. The next month was kind of nerve-wracking, though, for Bitteker and Norris, worried that the police might come for them, you know, at any moment. So Bitteker found a new apartment in Burbank while Norris remained with his mother. The killers began to relax, though, as the weeks passed with no sign of police attention. The pair went hunting again on Halloween night, which is one of the reasons why I actually chose this episode to release on Halloween originally because there was, a, you know, their last... Their last crime was on Halloween. Um, so deviating from their beach routine to prowl the residential streets of the uh, Sunland and, and, and Tajunga district in the San Fernando Valley, they spotted 16-year-old L- Lynette Ledford hitchhiking and offered her a ride. She once again, like, like those two other girls, happily accepted. And within five minutes, Norris wrestled her to murder Max Floor. Bitteker this time, though, chose not to waste time driving to the mountains. He figured they could just rape and torture Ledford just as well, he reasoned, 
while they drove around the suburbs of Los Angeles. Norris took the driver's seat while Bitteker, Bitteker um, turned on his tape recorder and went to work on the captive. The tape records him slapping her, demanding, quote, say something, girl. What do you want me to say? She responds. The slapping continues, interspread with cries of pain. Frustrated, Bitteker asked Ledford, quote, you can scream louder than that, can't you? Now, Ledford tries to accommodate him, but Bitteker still wants more. Soon he goes to work with the vice grip, with those vice grip pliers. Scream, baby, he urges. Next, you can hear Norris's voice. Quote, make noise there, girl, he orders. Go ahead and scream, or I'll make you scream. She says, I'll scream if you stop hitting me, as she sobs, as Norris starts striking her elbows with a hammer. Norris swings that hammer 25 times while he chants mindlessly, keep it up, girl, keep it up, scream till I say stop. Bitterker parked the van and prepared for the kill. I got a section of coat hanger, he later told police, and wrapped it around her throat and tied it up with the pliers. In Bolton, they thought it would be amusing to see what happened if they dumped their victims on someone's front lawn. They chose a yard at a random um, her, uh, her uh, house in Hermosa Beach and loaded Ledford's corpse into a bed of, a, uh, of ivy. The corpse was discovered the next morning. Now, this find shocked Los Angeles since it came only days after the arrest of the Hillside Strangler. Angelo Buono. The police said they were unaware of any other Hillside Strangler victims. There were missing girls and women on the books, of course, but who could say if they were dead? More to the point, how could the police identify the killers in the latest un, uh, unsolved case? In a sense, uh, Lynette Ledford spoiled the fun. She was the second 16-year-old Bitteker and Norris had murdered leaving three teen-aged girls unaccounted for. The hunters did not worry, though. From where they sat, it seems as if they had all the time in the world. But they were mistaken. Roy Norris himself was part of the problem. So despite the murder game shortcoming, Norris enjoyed it so much that he simply couldn't keep quiet. He had a talk. So by October 1979, he had started bragging to another friend from prison, Jimmy Dalton, emphasizing his role as a, quote, criminal mastermind. Dalton thought it was, um, thought it all was just kind of talk until Ledford's body was found. So he called his lawyer and they both went to, uh, to the Los Angeles police. Now, LA's finest listened to Dalton's story, then passed him to detectives in Hermosa Beach where Ledford's corpse had been disc uh, discarded. Let me tell you what really went down here, guys. In my opinion, Jimmy Dalton has some legal issues, I would assume. When Norris bragged, he saw an opportunity to snitch in exchange for a plea deal in his case. And that's my personal speculation. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but he, you a snitch guy. Uh, Hermosa Beach detective Paul Bynum headed the Ledford investigation. Now, he had no forensic evidence to support a charge um, in the Ledford slang. But Dalton's mention of a silver van rang a bell in Bynum's memory. He dispatched an officer to Oregon to interview Shirley Sanders, 
who was attacked one month before. Remember, she couldn't give a, she, she didn't know who they were, but she remembered that van. Now, photographs were proffered for Sanders to examine. examine. Leafing through the stack, she picked out Bittaker and Norris as the men who had kidnapped and raped her. Bynum approached Deputy District Attorney Steve Kay, who had prosecuted Norris on his previous rape charge in Redondo Beach. Kay cautioned patience. Even though a quick arrest would halt the, uh, halt the murder spree, they needed time to build a strong case. Let us not forget, though, both of these men should have already been behind bars for their multiple violent uh, offenses, including rape, right? These murders were preventable if California wasn't full of fucking cucks. Beta! Police mounted surveillance on the pier. Once again, Norris was the weak link. He was see, uh, seen selling marijuana on the street. So police made their move Tuesday, two days before Thanksgiving 1979, and they arrested uh, Norris for parole violation on that marijuana charge, while Bitteker was jailed on suspicion of kidnapping and raping Shirley Sanders. Norris waived his right to counsel and sparred with the interrogators for a while, but eventually Homie crumbled, casting himself as a reluctant accomplice to the murders planned and carried out by Bitteker. The, quote, prison code demanded that he go along for the ride, Norris insisted. After all, he owned Bitteker his life, but apparently not his silence, am I right? Um, on the strength of Norris's confession, both men were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, plus additional charges of kidnapping, robbery, rape, deviant sexual assault, and criminal conspiracy. Each defendant tried to blame the other for the most egregious acts. Norris now claimed that he had been high on drugs most of the time, unable to resist Bitteker. But the audio tapes told a different story, revealing Norris, Norris as a full participant. Norris realized he would have to do more to avoid the death penalty. So in February 1980, he led Detective Bynum, Steve, uh, Steve Kay, and members of the Sierra Madre search and rescue team on a tour of the San Gabriel murder sites. They found Lee Lamp and Jackie Gilman, with Bitteker's ice pick still buried in uh, Gilliam's ear. But no trace was found of Cindy Schaefer or Andrea Hall. They were kind of just lost forever. But Norris had delivered enough evidence to clinch his plea bargain. With that finding on file, Norris was sent sentenced to 75 years to life, with a minimum of 30 years to serve um, before parole. Crazy enough, and right in line with California, he was eligible for parole, guys, in 2009. 2009. Think about that. After all this, five murders, all these rapes, yeah, we'll let you out in 2009. Why not? Um, yep, you know, just eligible for release back to the streets. Now, fortunately for society, homie didn't even show up. He didn't even show up for his parole meeting. So when you don't show up, I guess you're instantly denied, and he was denied, and that pushes you back 10 whole years. And I believe he's eligible again next year. Now, Steve Kay, he was more committed to seeking the death penalty for Lawrence Bitteker. In an unwitting tribute to Bitteker's jailhouse ambition, Kay declared that for sheer brutality, the crimes of Charlton Manson's cultist, quote, didn't even come close to Bitteker's rampage. Despite his experience in, in prosecuting rapists, murderers, and even other kinds of felon, Kay twice broke down weeping during Bitteker's three-week trial. For his part, the defendant seemed to enjoy the proceedings, 
Bitteker had prepared for trial by writing his memoirs, fittingly titled, titled The Last Ride. Though warned repeatedly by his attorney, he insisted on finishing the manuscript, apparently convinced that jurors would actually believe his assertion that Norris masterminded the operation. This gamble failed. And on February 17, 1981, Bitteker was found guilty on five murder counts and 21 other related felonies. California, like all other states, holds, holds its criminal trials in stages. The first determines guilt or innocence. The second, if a defendant is convicted, determines punishment. To support the death sentence, California prosecutors must demonstrate, quote, special circumstances, such as slayings deemed um, especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, manifesting ex- exceptional depravity. Bitteker's personal audio tapes were replayed for the jury, which promptly recommended death. As with Norris, another probation report was generated. Bitteker's examiner wrote that, quote, during the years this officer um, has been submitting evaluations to the court, he has had occasions to interview many individuals convicted of brutal crimes, but none to the extent of the ones for which this defendant has been convicted. During the interviews with him, although although verbalizing some feelings um, for the teenage deaths that had occurred uh, uh, had, that he had caused, there was no real outward expression or emotion displayed. His total attitude was almost as if he had been able to kind of divorce himself from the emotions felt by the, um, you know, the major portion of society. The report concluded that there was quote little doubt that he would return to a life of crime and possibly a life of violence possibly guys, possibly a life of violence, um, if released into society. The juror's recommendation sentenced clearly, um, quote, would be the most permanent protection available. The judge agreed, and Bitteker was sentenced to death on March 24th, 1981. Now, death penalty sentences are neither sure nor swift. Appeal of a death sentence is automatic, regardless of the defendant's wishes. So two years elapsed before California Supreme Court appointed Bitteker's appellate uh, attorney. Six more before the uh, same court affirmed Bitteker's death sentence on June 28th, 1989. So what's that? Eight years, eight years and seven appeals. Um, Bitteker was absent on October 4th, 1989 when Torrance Judge John Shook set his execution date for December 29th, but he had little to fear. His attorney filed yet another appeal that automatically stayed the execution. On June 11th, 1990, the California Supreme Court declined to hear the case again. Later that same year, while actor Scott Glenn was preparing for his role as an FBI profiler in The Silence of the Lambs, he visited the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, Virginia. Legendary profiler John Douglas gave Glenn a tour of the facility. Glenn listened to the Bitteker-Norris tapes, and he left Douglas's offices in tears. He told reporters that he had entered the office as a death penalty opponent, and he left staunchly in favor of capital punishment. When Bitteker was not busy drafting appeals, he amused himself by filing frivolous suits against the state prison system. There were more than 40 of these suits in all by October 1995. In one case, case, listen to this, guys, 
where he claimed that he had been subjected to, quote, cruel and unusual punishment by receiving a broken cookie on his lunch tray. State officials, the great state of California, paid $5,000 to him to have his suit dismissed. That's California's tax dollars at work, guys. Five grand to a man on death row for a broken fucking cookie. Beta! Come on, man. Before the state was granted um, summary judgment, they had to prove that Bitteker could skip his lunch and still survive by only eating breakfast and dinner. Because, you know, I can't eat, my, I can't eat my, uh, my lunch if my cookie's broke. It was all great fun and cost Bitteker nothing. Because just like other weird laws and weird shit going on in California, California prisoners are permitted to uh, file their suits for free. No charge to you. Unlike, you know, normal citizens who have to pay to file a suit. Eh, in prison, you can just file all you want for free. No repercussions. When not pursuing nu- uh, um, nuisance litigation, he enjoyed a daily game of bridge with fellow inmates Randy Kraft, Douglas Clark, and William Bonin, themselves convicted serial killers with an estimated 94 victims among them. So he's with good company here. The game was left shorthanded in February 1996 after Bonin was executed, but Bitteker has other diversions. In the late 1990s, a catalog of prison memorabilia offered his fingernail clippings for sale to murder groupies. And then there's the fan mail, enough to keep him busy between card games. Bitteker, like we started this, often signs his letters with that nickname, Pliers. Lawrence Bitteker still awaits his death to this day, almost 40 years after being convicted and sentenced to death. Still alive, still breathing, we're still uh, paying to feed, house, clothe, and warm this guy. To me, that's a fucked up system. All right, guys, that's all I got. Um, This is going to conclude this episode. I appreciate you staying here. Uh, And I apologize again for, um, for not having an episode out in a few weeks. Hopefully we didn't lose too many of you guys. We were just hitting our stride. Um, like always, follow the um, Instagram page, please. I know I have not been active on social media. I'm going to get back active on that, I promise. Um, and and like always, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. I'll catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. Feel good.
the bomb. Yeah. Not Dexter, got no boat, so I find that the growth is quite remote. And I'm leaving them all with an open throat. I'm a normal bloke in an overcoat. I'm just a family dude, but you don't really know where my brain is at. Don't scratch my surface, ain't worth it, cause you'll see the dumber. Yeah. 